0: I gotta keep up with Josh with the sport coat game. Nice red jacket, I like it. Well, do the things that bring you pleasure also bring God pleasure? To be more specific in the Christmas season, are the things that bring you pleasure about the story of Christmas and all the trappings of Christmas, are those the same things that brings God pleasure? Now, I think if we're honest with each other, uh, we would have two lists. We'd have a a spiritual list and a non spiritual list. And and, and if we wrote all of those things down that bring us pleasure, the chances are those non spiritual things will be longer. I I love some of those non spiritual things. I love Christmas trees. I I love the the smell and the look of the lights and, and the trees. I like presents, I like cookies. I like Christmas parties. I enjoy to see the happiness on the faces of my children when they open up a present that they've been waiting for months for and shaking the boxes, trying to figure it out. I even love putting things together on Christmas Eve, except for those things, those evil things that don't come with batteries. What would your list look like? Would they all be non-spiritual? I'd love to tell you that all of my list would be super spiritual things, all religious things, but I'd be lying to you. But even though my list contains non-spiritual things, things that I enjoy about this part of the year, there are certainly spiritual things that bring me great pleasure. Why? Because in my heart, deep down I hope that those things that I enjoy so much are the same things that brings God pleasure if my aim and if your aim is to be more and more like Christ is to glorify him then doesn't it make sense that we would want to tune our hearts and tune our minds to the heart and mind of Christ I'm not talking some new age mystical thing where we light candles and chant and do all these other weird things I'm talking about knowing who Christ is through the power of Scripture and prayer and fellowship so that we can grow in our love and our knowledge of our Creator. So what brings God pleasure? Volumes could be written expounding the details of what brings God pleasure. It's not our focus today, though it's important to see a few kind of bits and pieces of of what Scripture says about God, how He is pleasure. We know that after God made everything, he saw his creation, and it was very good to him. The Lord rejoices in his own works. He takes pleasure in his people, covering them in his salvation. The Proverbs, if you've read through those, they're full of statements about what brings God pleasure. Proverbs 11.1 says this, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs eleven twenty: 20, those of crooked hearts are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. And Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. These are statements that show how God finds his pleasure in justice and clean hearts and in telling the truth reiterated again in Jeremiah 9:24 let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord all of these verses and and there are others they give us a picture of who God is and what he delights in we can know God through the study of his word and that's our primary goal And as Christians, our love should be knowing him more. That's our desire. This should make sense. If we want to know who God is, we study his character, and we see that he is justice and love and holiness and righteousness. And we see that over and over throughout the entirety of Scripture. But is there something that gives God the most pleasure? As we encounter John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus coming to him. And then Jesus does something strange. He goes up to John and says, will you baptize me? Or I come to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're coming to me? I should be coming to you to be baptized. Well, as the story goes, John ends up baptizing Jesus. And what happens next? The Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove. And then God, the Father's voice, says this. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father is most pleased in his Son. Now think about that for a moment. Who or what existed forever? Forever is a difficult thing to comprehend. We we know maybe 100 years, 200 years, but forever is so difficult to wrap our minds around. But we can see in Scripture that the only thing, and the only thing that logically makes sense, is that God is the only uh, person who has ever existed forever. There, there, there is no end. There's no beginning. And inside the Godhead, we have three. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm not here to expound on that, to defend the Trinity. But this is what Scripture says, that there are three in one. So the only the trinity has always existed yet every verse that we just read it shows except for Matthew 3 shows that God delights in his people. But we haven't existed forever. Certainly not forever. So where did God find his pleasure before us? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Before all things came to be, the Father found his joy in the Son. The Trinity was all that existed, so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit found their pleasure and their delight in one another. They existed in perfect harmony without a taint of sin. Now, think about that. Forever before the creation, the Trinity existed, and they found that there was perfect unity in themselves, there was nothing lacking. Keep that in your mind as we read this chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, that before the foundation of the world, the Trinity was there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit perfectly unified, perfectly worshiping themselves. This passage that we're going to read is a prophecy written about Jesus, the Messiah, and what he would do for his people. To redeem them from their sinful state. It's a a passage about the Son who existed forever and the Father who loved him more than anything that you and I can imagine. And yet, the Father sends his Son to us. Let's read beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 53 Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring This passage was written 600 years before Jesus was born. But isn't it striking that this story, this passage, this prophecy by the prophet Isaiah talks so clearly about the coming Messiah, of what Jesus would do for his people, And as we read this passage, as we read this, continue to think about this major point of the the Trinitarian relationship in the front of your mind. Remember the perfect relationship that the father had with the son and how agonizing it would have been for the father to send his son to a world that largely rejected him, spit on him, crucified him, gave out injustice to his innocent son. And in verse 3, we see our first point, that Jesus was unfairly judged. Have you ever experienced being judged unfairly? As a teenager, I did a lot of bad, bad things, so many I can't remember. And that doesn't bother me so much. It does, but it doesn't bother me. What bothers me more and what sticks with me to this day 30 years later is when I actually didn't do something, but yet I got blamed for it. And what would often happen is, is that something bad would happen, they wouldn't know what happened, so they go to the kid that always is in trouble, and they blame him, and I was that guy. And it didn't bother me when I got in trouble for what I did, because I deserved it, but what made me so upset and hurt was when I would get blamed for something that I didn't do. And I would beg, and I would plead, and I I would beg them to, to listen to my story, and they wouldn't listen because my history was so bad. It sticks with you. When someone accuses you of doing something that you didn't do, it sticks with you. It doesn't go away. Now, we can't come close to understanding what Jesus would have endured. This was God in the flesh, perfect son of God, being mistreated and suffering the scorn of man. He did nothing wrong, and yet he was abused, he was mistreated, he was murdered. Scripture says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You and I have maybe felt the anger of people when we share the gospel with them, when we present to them their sin, and we say, here is what you've done wrong, but here is Jesus who can save you from that, and the the anger starts to boil, and we, we get that, we understand that, but we can't understand why someone would ever reject the perfect gift that only Christ can offer. We can't understand the rejection that Jesus faced because we're not perfected yet. But for God to come and become one of us, to sacrifice himself for us, to suffer all of the scorn and shame for us. And yet, Scripture says that most people will reject him. Most people will not follow after Christ. He was judged unfairly. But the second point is this the reason he suffered was for our sin. So the perfect Lord was unjustly judged. He did nothing wrong, and yet he still faced persecution. Why? In verse 4, we see this point. The reason Jesus suffered was for our sin. It's not popular. But if we ignore the truth that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the suffering of Jesus loses its entire meaning and purpose. Jesus dying on the cross would be nothing more than a madman who who allowed himself to die while proclaiming to be God at the same time. It would serve no purpose. Our sin is why Jesus suffered on the cross. And this leads us to our third point this morning, found in verse 5, that his suffering was agonizing. I won't spend much time or any time really at all going through all the details of what crucifixion is, but we can all agree that it's hideous, horrific, nightmarish, what Jesus endured. But in all of the talk of the physical aspects of the crucifixion, sometimes we, I think we mistake or we lose the idea of the spiritual torment and the emotional torment that Jesus must have endured. Jesus endured the wrath of God this wasn't an uncontrollable anger like you and I face when someone does something to hurt us rather God's anger is against sin he's created everything and he he made humanity the jewels the pinnacle of his creation he's given us all that we need and yet we still choose to disobey we still chose to be rebels and God is perfect so he has every right to demand that his creation responds in kind But ever since Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, humanity has continually rebelled against our creator. And just as a good parent cannot allow their child to disobey, neither can God. So the only right response is for God to punish sin by punishing the sinner. The good news for the Christian is that Jesus suffered this penalty for us. But just think. Think about what Jesus must have been going through as he held every one of your sins on his shoulders. Every single evil thought that you and I have ever had. Every single unkind word. Every thought of revenge. Every lie you've ever told. All of it. Every single one of them was taken care of by Jesus. If you and I had to relive that, What we've done, just our own sin, we couldn't carry that weight. We couldn't handle carrying all of the weight of our own sin. So you can imagine what Jesus endured, not just the physical pain, but the emotional weight that he carried. And the fourth thing we see in this passage is that Jesus suffered for you on his own accord. He did this voluntarily. He did it for us. Look at verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from his land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What Jesus did wasn't out of compulsion. The Father didn't force him to do it. Uh, before his death, we know that Jesus prayed for that to pass him. But in his flesh, he would have said that. We would have said the same thing. We, no one wants to go through that suffering and that pain. Jesus wanted to avoid that suffering. Yet, Jesus knew. He knew that he had to endure that great pain on the cross. Now this should shake us. This should bring us to our knees. That God in flesh did no wrong, would come and willingly die for me. That he would suffer at the hands of wicked men. He would suffer and he would die. Not only that, he would be rejected, he would be spit upon, he would be mocked for me and for you. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, one of his last things that he said was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He could have wiped out every single one of them. He could have sent legions of angels to come and kill all of those people that were murdering Jesus. And yet he didn't. Why? He chose this for himself. So that God would be glorified in his actions to save his people. And we see this in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is the fifth point. As hideous as this was, as terrible as the death of Christ was, all of it, all of it was part of God's plan. The common theme of the Bible, according to many, according to the pop culture of the day is that God is love. That's how we describe God, love. Ignoring the fact that the only thing that's repeated three times over and over is holy, holy, holy. Holy. Your love is an aspect of God's character. But what do we do with the verse like Isaiah 53, 10 then? It was the will of God to crush his son? How does this work? Does God have multiple personalities? We, we see that God is love, but yet we see God killing Jesus. There are two main themes that run throughout the Bible. God's love for sinners and his desire to preserve and display his glory. And these two themes meet in perfect harmony at the cross God's love for sinners in providing them a way to be forgiven, and God's glory shown in the saving of sinners by slaying his son. God's pleasure didn't come in the torture and death of his son, his pleasure comes from the great success of what Jesus accomplished in his death. And there's no more perfect example of God and his glory than Jesus on the cross. When we read this verse from Matthew 3, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We understand that the crushing of the Son was painful for the Father, but this was his plan from the beginning. Why? God was willing to give himself so that his glory would shine through saving you. And all this leads to the final point. Because of Jesus' work, we are counted as righteous. It would be easy to read these first 10 verses and come away with this pretty down, sad, depression, uh, all of this to say, well, yeah, uh, they did all of this to Jesus. They tortured him. They, They stabbed him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They nailed through his hands and through his feet. And without verse 10, we don't understand why. should be magnified in us. If we stopped at verse 10, this is exactly the feeling that we would have. But thankfully, God's word continues to give us life and truth because of what happens in verses 1 through 10. Jesus' perfect work on the cross. Because of that, we are seen as righteous in God's eyes. Look at look at Verse 11. Excuse me there, verse 12. Therefore I would divide a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what Jesus does for you and for me when we repent and we put our trust in him. He stands in between us and the Father's wrath. And this is what he does. No longer does God judge us on our imperfect lives, but instead he sees the perfection of his son. Jesus stands as our mediator. Our sin was given to him and his righteousness credited to us. Now it would be a mistake to read through this passage, this prophetic passage, and ignore this big picture, that God found great pleasure in crushing his son, not because he enjoyed it, but instead because he knew that it would bring him the most glory by saving sinners and giving us eternal life. And maybe you're here this morning and you're expecting uh, a detailed story of Jesus in the manger. That you want me to paint a picture. It's not true, but animals around him may or may not be true. Of three men, it may be more, maybe less, coming from far away. Maybe you want that story, and and we can sing the songs, which are wonderful songs, and maybe that's what you're expecting this morning, is this this feel-good Christmas message, and I am excited to tell you that, that that's true. All of that happens. Scripture says it pretty clear, that Jesus came as a babe, he was born of a virgin, and he was born in a manger. We know that. But here's where I'll tell you this, and this is not a critique of other churches, but this is a critique of preachers who've done this, myself included. We stop there. We just tell the story of Jesus being born. What good is that? If that's all that happened, we are still in our sin. Jesus came to be born so that you and I could be born again. This is what Christmas is. Not just a baby. Christmas points to the cross, and without the message of the cross and forgiveness of sin, Christmas doesn't make any sense to me. But when I see the birth of Christ in light of the death of Christ, it begins to make sense. If you're here today, and maybe you were dragged here, maybe you weren't. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sin, which means turned from your sin and given your life over to Christ. If you've never done that, you may not get all of this talk. Yeah, this is just a prophecy. This is just history. This is a book written by men. This may not make any sense to you if you've never asked God to forgive you of her sin. This won't make sense. But if you haven't done that, if you haven't trusted in Christ, do it today. What better time to celebrate your new birth than at the birth of Christ? Some places would want you to walk down an aisle and stand and do some kind of ritualistic thing here. No, you can do it right at your seat. You can trust God anywhere you are. But what the gospel says, what this gospel message for Christmas says, is that Jesus came to live for us and to die for us so that we would not have to suffer what Jesus suffered. At Christmas, don't stop at a baby in a manger, don't stop with Jesus as an infant. Keep it going. Continue to look to the cross, the trees, the, the lights, all of that stuff. Do not let that to distract you from the fact that God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth chances. That God has welcomed his people into his kingdom with a celebration of multitude of angels. And Christmas, the gifts, the lights, the trees, they don't have any meaning and any purpose. If we don't understand why Jesus came for us, he came and suffered so that we could be made right with God. And this morning, if that's not you, if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in God, do it this morning. Come to Christ in repentance and faith. He promises that he will give you eternal life not because of anything good that you've done or that I've done or any special prayer that you pray or any magical words or any religious experience. No, only because of God's wonderful, merciful grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for everything that you've given to us, that you've sent your Son to live with us and for us and to die for us so that he could serve as our mediator between you and us, that we could be now made right with you so, Father, I ask at Christmas, this season, help us to reflect on this. Help us to spend time thinking through what Christmas really means, that it doesn't just stop with Jesus in a manger, that it continues. And that Christmas always, always points us to the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.